Good morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, preach only your sovereignty. Son, preach only your redemption. Holy Spirit, preach only your regeneration to us this morning and none other. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, thank you for having us back. We're back in Revelation this morning. We're in Revelation 12 this morning after being in Revelation 11 last week. For those of you who weren't here, let's do a quick review to catch up. The themes are the same from Revelation into Revelation, uh, Revelation 11 into Revelation 12. And so we need to review in order to keep those themes in mind as we go through the chapter this morning. So in Revelation 11, we're given this grand metaphor for the church. The church is represented in chapter 11 by two witnesses. There are two people sent out in a pair, like the disciples in the Gospels, to prophesy in the midst of great persecution. They're attacked. And though they are attacked, they're powerful, they're unstoppable. They're boldly proclaiming the word of God while doing things that the prophets Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament were doing. But they're unstoppable only as long as God says that they are. Eventually, they are stopped. We read last week that they were killed and their unburied bodies are exposed and dragged through the streets and mocked. But that's not the end. Their death is only temporary. After just three and a half days, they are resurrected. They get up. Everyone who reviled them and celebrated their deaths is terrified. And then they're called home. They ascend or even are raptured, to use some current American church lingo. And then, as depicted at the very end of the chapter, a seventh trumpet is blown, and then we see the end of history, or the second coming of the Messiah. It's the end of the chapter. The seventh trumpet is blown, and history ends. Right? And our takeaways from last week were, very simply, that you are the two witnesses. You have to go out and preach. You should be bold in doing it because you are unstoppable. You have real power like those two. The time for preaching and prophecies is short. You do not have to do it for that long. It will come to an end. So get to it. Your neighbors need it. Your family needs it. And you will be attacked. You might even be killed. But that is all also short and temporary. You will resurrect. Now, before we studied that chapter, we tried to establish an approach to Revelation that hopefully helped us all stay on the same page. But while we are driving home, of course, my wife wondered aloud if I could have been a lot clearer in explaining my approach to Revelation, which is, totally defeats the whole purpose. Uh, so I'm sorry about that if it wasn't clear. Let's get on the same page. I said last week that I do not approach Revelation either literally or chronologically. And when I say that, I don't mean that there aren't things in Revelation that aren't literal. I do not mean that they're not real and applicable. What I mean is that John means some things literally, namely what you must do, and he means other things figuratively. You must preach and prophesy. And while doing that, you probably will be attacked. Some might even be killed. That is literal. 
What's not literal is how John depicts it. The two witnesses are not two literal people. They're a representation of you. You are the witnesses. They represent all of us. God judging his enemies while preserving his children is completely literal. What's not literal is how John depicts it. God does not need seven seals and then seven trumpets and then seven bowls of wrath to do that judging. That defeats what we know about the number seven. Seven means completion or perfection. Those sevens are all the same thing. They're just different ways to depict the same thing. The seven seals are the seven trumpets, are the seven bowls. So that's what we mean. The persecution and death is also literally temporary. What's literal is not how is what's not literal, excuse me, is how John depicts that length of time. Three and a half years and forty-two months and one thousand two hundred and sixty days. They're all the same thing. That's the same amount of time. It's too coincidental. It's too clean. It's literary. It's not literal. And today's chapter should prove to you that Revelation not only is not literal, but it can't be chronological. In this chapter, John takes a step back and gives you this huge, broad, sweeping view of Israel's history, much of which has obviously already happened. It's not chronological. In fact, in the chapter, John jumps back and forth in the narrative. So that's what we mean by that approach. Now let's jump into our chapter, chapter 12. What we just read is my favorite version of the Christmas story. Did you catch it? The, it's, it's Christmas. It is the arrival. It's the advent of the Messiah. Every year, the second graders at the school where I teach, they memorize Luke's version of Christmas in Luke's gospel. It's very cute. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of quaint. I want this version. Every year I suggest, read Revelation 12. It's way cooler. And every year I'm ignored. It's really rude. I'm the head of the department. No one listens to me. They should take me seriously. It's a cool version, right? This dragon is after the Messiah and the people from whom the Messiah is given us. It's a cosmic, spiritual version of Christmas that Joseph and Mary and everyone else could not see or comprehend while they're right in the middle of it. Now, if you're a student of mythology, you might recognize this story and its format. This is actually very common in antiquity. The most famous version is probably the goddess Leto. She is pregnant with Zeus's son, Apollo, but she is being pursued by a dragon named Python because Python has heard that this boy is going to kill him. So he's after Leto. Zeus sends some winds to sweep her away, and she's rescued out to an island in the middle of the sea, and then Zeus's brother Poseidon, the god of the sea, covers over the island with a bunch of waves and water to hide her. She gives birth, and four days later, little baby Apollo finds the dragon and kills him. It's a pretty cool version. John is not borrowing from that story. Both the Greeks and John are actually taking from Old Testament imagery. The dragon is all over the Old Testament. When you look for it, you can find him in Isaiah 51, for example. John also borrows from the Old Testament for his image of the church. Here she is depicted as a radiant woman with the same characteristics as the people of God in Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, among other places. There, the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to the 12th star, who is Joseph. 
Here in Revelation 12, the woman is clothed with the sun, the moon has been placed under her feet as a footstool, and her crown bears 12 stars. Remember from our study last week that 12 and multiples of it, any multiple of 12, represent the church. She is the people of God. And it's not just the number 12 that tells us that the woman is a symbol for the church or the imagery of the sun, moon, and stars. It's also the expectation of a birth. A pregnant woman calling out in labor pains or a barren woman longing for a son. It's a repeated Old Testament image for God's people crying out for their Messiah. And you can find it all over the place. And we know it's the Messiah thanks to verse 5. We're blatantly told he is the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. It's a clear insult to the dragon who we are told has amazing influence over the nations in verse 9. The Messiah will rule with a rod of iron. And that is exactly what the victims of the persecution from chapters 11 and this chapter want to hear, isn't it? It is such a comfort. Who's going to save us? Who is going to defeat our persecutors? Read the opening of the fifth seal in chapter 6 of Revelation. There, when the fifth seal is opened, there are a bunch of martyrs. And they actually call out, all right, now is the time. Is now the time that you're going to go kill people? Are you going to now go avenge us and kill everybody that killed us? It's a common theme. That was what was wanted in a Messiah, a rod of iron to protect the church. And that is what is delivered and also so much more. The end of verse 5 shows the child caught up to God and to his throne. It's a clear reference to the ascension of Jesus after his death and resurrection. He rises up and he takes the throne and he rules more than ever now with that rod of iron over the nations. The persecution from chapter 11, which we read last week, carries over into the themes of this chapter. John reiterates the urgency and seriousness of the dragon's incessant focused persecution of God's created order. And the people of God are to cry out for it to come to an end. Do you, two rivers, do we as a church, do we cry out for the return of the Messiah? Here Israel is calling out for the arrival of the Messiah with the pregnant woman. We should be doing the same thing. Are we calling out for his return to come and end the sin and the misery that we see? It's not easy in the developed world, is it? We don't ask for God to return and end history very often, do we? We're satiated. We're happy. We own a boat, y'all. It is nice out. We're not in Ohio. This is paradise. Almost. If it weren't for the gnats and the humidity, we would be overrun. We are so comfortable. We don't necessarily want the Messiah to return. We want to do all sorts of other things. I want that house. I want that spouse. I want those kids. I want to do this other thing. We're so insulated from other people's pain that we don't always cry out for the return of the Messiah. I think we would if we recognized the dragon's efforts here as well as his influence. This dragon is obviously Satan. We're told so in verse 9. It's an allusion to the snake in the Garden of Eden. And we don't know a whole lot about Satan's fall from grace when he's banished from heaven except for 
few scattered references from other writers of the Bible. Isaiah 14 uh, is one of them. Here in verse 4, many scholars speculate that John is referencing the horde of angels that followed Satan out of heaven in his rebellion. In verse 4, we're told that his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. Many scholars speculate that those are demons that followed with them, other fallen angels. Those demons and the dragon continue to contend with the Messiah and his church. And John jumps back and forth in the narrative of the dragon's banishment, uh, like in verse 7, picks up with the angelic war in heaven when Michael and his angels oust Satan from heaven. He jumps back and forth to highlight Satan's desire to upset all of the orders of the cosmos, both the spiritual order and the physical order, heaven and earth. He got some of God's angels, and now he wants you. Now he wants God's people. And you'd think he'd win, right? He's a dragon. She's a woman and a baby. This is actually God versus an angel he created. It is not a mighty dragon versus a little baby. Both the Christ and the people from whom the Christ is given us are swept away and saved from the dragon. The woman is swept away into a temporary exile in the wilderness. But even if the exile is temporary, the persecution of God's people does continue. The dragon is relentless and he is serious. When one attack doesn't work, he takes another one. Did you notice all the strategic shifts by the dragon in the reading? He wants the Messiah, right? And there are lots of of attempts at the Messiah through Herod, uh, right after the birth, through the temptation in the wilderness, through the handing over of the Messiah to the Jews and the Romans toward the end of his life. None of that works. doesn't get him. So he turns on the woman. He turns on you, the church. But she flees into the wilderness, so he chases her down. But in verse 14, we're told that she is given the wings of an eagle, and she flees into the wilderness. And she's protected for a while, described by John as 1,260 days in verse 6, or described as time, times, and half a time in verse 14. Those are the same thing, three and a half ages or three and a half years. I also love how the wilderness is both an image of protection from the enemy. It's also an image for persecution by the enemy. The wilderness is both. With her wings, she is too fast for the dragon. So then he kind of grossly vomits out this river of water to try to drown her. But God then sends an earthquake. The earth opens up, swallows the water, and she is saved. And he is furious. So instead of her, he then turns on the rest of her offspring. Look with me in verse 17. Chapter 12, verse 17. The dragon then became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That last little line there is pretty weird. He stood on the sand of the sea. It's an unfortunate place to break up the chapter. The chapters and verses are not inspired by God. Uh, 
that little line right there carries into chapter 13. Please, later on today, go home and read chapter 13. It's frightening. The dragon realizes that sheer force of will and anger are not working. Nothing is working. He can't get the Messiah. He can't get God's people. So he goes to the sea and he calls up from the abyss a beast. And this beast is interesting. It's got a bunch of heads, but one of them has a mortal wound that's been healed. This beast speaks with amazing authority and power as if he could prevail over death itself. The dragon then goes to the chasms of the earth and he calls up a second beast. And this second beast performs miracles and authoritative signs and wonders. He has the gift of languages and he moves people to go marvel at the dragon and beast number one. I hope that frightens you. The dragon chases and fights and chases and none of it works. So he stops and he pulls this clever little reverse psychology and instead of chasing everybody down, he steps back and he creates a fake trinity with a fake Messiah and a fake Holy Spirit as he is a fake father and he lets everybody just turn around and like, hey, what are they doing? Look at that. Look at the first beast. That's pretty crazy. He's resurrected. Look at the second beast. He's got the gift of languages and he's prophesying and testifying about the first beast. And everybody then just turns around and walks right up to the dragon to be devoured. He is clever and we are weak. We are foolish. We love our sin and our pride and our addictions and we will let the dragon and the two beasts feed us anything that we want to hear in order to justify our sin and our pride and our addictions. And it works. The dragon will happily supply whatever we want to hear, those subtle little shifts in the truth, uh, the sudden little not-so-subtle displays of power. That's all chapter 13. The dragon's attempts at the church in our chapter should also not be dismissed. He does suffer miss after miss going after God's people. But he does have some success. Last week in chapter 11, we read that the people of God were killed once their authority was taken away. We must continue to preach. We must continue to prophesy to our neighbors regardless of what happens. The church in chapter 11, though, is killed. And chapter 12 repeats this. Follow along with me in verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They were also killed. And that doesn't sound like conquering. They conquered the dragon by being killed by the dragon. This is really interesting juxtaposition by John. They were killed, but they conquered. 
It's weird until we step back and we remember that the dragon doesn't care about your body. He knows everyone resurrects, everyone's getting their body back, everyone will live again. He cares about your soul. He wants your essence. The Bible repeatedly talks about two deaths, the first death and the second death. The first death, all of us get. The second death, many of us are spared. The first death, right, our bodies, what the Messiah came to die for, what the Messiah came to die for and overcome will be overcome by you. You will get up. You will live again. The second death, you get to skip altogether. Jesus Christ on the cross bearing the, the punishment for your sin, for the, bearing the weight of God's wrath down on his own head so that you don't have to means that you get to skip the second death. That's what the dragon really wants. He wants the very image of God imprinted in you. He couldn't get God to bow down to him in his initial rebellion. He couldn't get Jesus to bow down to him in the wilderness. So he'll take as many of God's image bearers as he can. And when you, the image bearers, would be conquered and yet stand up right in the face of the dragon and you still talk about Jesus, you preserve your soul. The dragon cannot have you. We must, no matter what happens, even as the dragon's teeth are sinking into us, remind the dragon that the baby he tried to eat is going to kill him. And he knows full well it's not Apollo. It's not some cute myth that we devised millennia ago to, make, to understand the stars and make the night watches more tolerable. This is the true son who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and he cannot be stopped. That testimony conquers the dragon. He cannot have your soul. You will be protected. You cannot ultimately die. He couldn't have the two witnesses from chapter 11. They get up and they ascend. And he can't have us. The sad thing is, however, how quickly we will actually shut up and abandon testifying about Jesus in the face of no persecution. It's probably a lot easier if someone is raining blows down on your head to say, I am a child of the king. But how often does it not take an attack for you to shut up and stop witnessing? Just a shun from a colleague, someone calling you out of touch, someone making fun of your antiquated regressive ethics, right? Then we, then we will be quiet. I saw this in my, in my own life. I, it's astounding to me how quickly my daughter will evangelize where I won't. We ran into a woman in Lowe's with a dog, and Marilee was, loved the dog, was petting him. She told the woman that God created her dog. The woman did not like that. Marilee did not care. And we're all awkward. We're all like, uh, okay. But <laughs> Marilee preaches. She didn't care. You are God's creation. Do you tell people that? Or do you fear your peers' opinions more than the real power of the universe? In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus warns us, don't be afraid of those who kill your body. Don't be afraid of the dragon. Be afraid of the one who kills body and soul. That's not the dragon. The dragon doesn't have that authority. 
Jesus is warning us to be afraid of the judge, God the Father. My friend Ross asked me Friday night, he just came out with it, how do we teach the fear of God? And he's not even talking, not, not even just to our kids. How do we teach it to us? How do we teach the fear of the judge? And some of what we determined was mentioned earlier, right? We get really comfortable and we tend, we tend not to fear. What's there to be afraid of when I can just go buy what I need? I think the fear of God would really come to us if we see the literal reality of John's vision of the apocalypse. The dragon has power, but not the power. The dragon has tricks, not power. When you see the tricks of the dragon and the seriousness with which, with, with, with which God takes the testimony of the church, the preaching and prophesying of the two witnesses in chapter 11, or the testimony of the martyrs here in the middle of our chapter, we would really fear the real power. Martin Scorsese's recent movie, Silence, is stunningly beautiful. If you haven't seen it, go get it. It's amazing. It's a, it's a beautiful movie. You've got to be in the mood. It is pretty harsh. If you're a reader, the book is even better. Uh, the book is also called Silence. It tells a true story about Portuguese priests who go as missionaries to Japan in the 17th century. Two Portuguese priests, still back home, get word of a rumor that one of their colleagues in Japan has turned apostate, has renounced his faith uh, in the face of persecution. They don't believe it. They don't believe it could possibly be true. They uh, appeal to the church, let them go find him in Japan. They're granted permission. As soon as they arrive in Japan, they too are persecuted, and they too wrestle with apostasy. They wrestle with renouncing their faith, uh, their faith. In the book and the movie, recanting the faith is even seen as almost acceptable and even noble in the face of the persecution because the Japanese were brutalizing one person over here in order to secure the, the recanting of the faith from this person over here. It'll stop. We'll stop killing this guy. You just have to recant your faith. It's very, very difficult. The movie got a bunch of um, critical acclaim. Um, it's a beautiful movie. But Japanese Christians were understandably annoyed. They wondered why apostates would be glorified by Scorsese, who's an avowed Catholic, and not the thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians who willingly went to their deaths in the face of persecution, proclaiming Jesus as the Christ. And to be fair, we actually don't really know what happened. The movie's based on the novel, and the novel is quite a bit of speculation because all of this happened in and around Nagasaki. So we don't have a lot of the records. One of the eeriest aspects of the story, and what Scorsese highlights so well in the movie, is the silence. Silence is the soundtrack. Huge chunks of the movie, all you hear is nature. The priests are, are hiding out, and they have to be completely silent. And then in the midst of the silent, cutting, cutting through the silence, like the woman in labor, are the cries of the saints as they're being tortured. The prayers of the saints as they're yelling out, where are you? They think God is silent. They think God is ignoring them. But we know where he is. 
He's right here with us. He's protecting his temple in chapter 11. He's walking out of the temple with the two witnesses. He's protecting them until it's time to come home. And then he calls them home. He's listening to the labor pains of the woman. He delivers and protects her and her child. He carries out the mission to save the woman from herself and the dragon. He wins the war with the dragon. And he listens to the worship of the saints who love not their lives even unto death. Our persecution, our surviving, or let's be honest, this is America, right? We don't really have to worry about that too much. Our persecution or our ridicule does not mean that he's not listening. When we're being ridiculed, it actually means, he's, he's, it means he is fulfilling his promises to us. I promise you, you'll be made fun of on account of me. I promise you that people hate me so much that they'll go after you as a representative of me. That's a promise. If we're preaching, if we're promise, prophesying. If you're blessed enough to face persecution, like these saints, as either a martyr or, like me, as just an embarrassing weirdo who actually believes this stuff, then you know, as you breathe your last breath or as you're being laughed at, that he has selected you for an amazing honor. You will not go down with the dragon. You go up with the witnesses and the Messiah. We're going to close with the prayer of the saints from chapter 11. Same prayer we gave last week, but it's still appropriate. As the themes are the same, pray with me. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations rage, but your wrath will come. The time, for the, the time for the dead to be judged will come. And for rewarding your saints, the prophets and your servants, those who fear your name, both small and great, will come. And the time will come for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Amen.